Well, good morning. Happy New Year. 2016 is gone. I don't know, maybe that's a good thing for you, maybe that's a bad thing, um, but I'm excited. I'm excited about what 2017 has to offer us. Um, so here we go. Thanks for being here. You guys are the party animals because of first service, so thanks for showing up. We're excited. Um, I'm excited to teach. Uh, my name is Josh. I'm one of the pastors here at South, and um, I'm happy to be here. Um, so let me ask you this uh, as we dig in this morning. Any New Year's resolutions out there? Anybody make New Year's resolutions for 2017? A couple people? Wow, like four. Good job. Four people. Uh, that's going to make my next point a little awkward, so we'll see. <laughs> Uh, that goes. But, um, you know, as believe it or not, not based on that poll, but believe it or not, we've been doing um, New Year's resolutions for over 4,000 years. 2000 BC, we have recorded the Babylonians would make New Year's resolutions at their New Year celebration. Uh, their New Year celebration was called Akitu, as far as I can pronounce it. I'm not sure. You might have to ask somebody smarter if you want more. Um, but they would worship their gods, and we won't get into how they would worship their gods because it's a family-friendly place. But they would um, worship their gods, and they would uh, return borrowed objects, and they would promise... Uh, to pay their debts back. So apparently there was a lot of lending going on back then, like tools or something, I don't know. But 2000 BC, they started that, as far as we know. Um, and then if we, if we fast forward um, a little bit in time to the Roman period, Julius Caesar, you see him there on your left, um, 46 BC, he corrected the broken calendar that Romulus had put into effect in the 8th century, um, and he fixed it. It was actually repeating either plus or minus like 27, 28 days. So he fixed that, um, and he instituted the month of January, okay? So the month of January is named in honor of the god Janus, and you see Janus there, the, the strange-looking double-headed dude. Um, apparently, he was responsible for past and future Janus didn't care about the present. He wasn't a present man. He was more past and future. So they would make, um, they would have a big party, they'd have a big feast, they'd give each other gifts, um, and they would make New Year's promises to each other. So there you go, New Year's resolution in the Roman period. All right, so the next one is one of my favorite ones. This is called the Vow of the Peacock. And as early as the 1300s, medieval knights would re-dedicate um, uh, themselves with the vow of the peacock the first of the year. And if you know anything about the vow of the peacock, that is a dedication or a vow to chivalry. All right? So I think that's pretty cool. Chivalry, everybody says, is dead, but I think we can make it come back. So officially, I am taking the vow of the peacock in front of you all as my witnesses, the vow of the peacock. I'm dedicating my life this year to chivalry, but maybe I should read a little bit more about chivalry because all I know about it is like, be nice and open doors. So that, that could get awkward if there's some weird things in there. Okay. Um, the next one, and maybe you're familiar with Yom Kippur, um, uh, Rosh Hashanah, the, the year-end holiday for the Jews, um, their, their day of atonement is Yom Kippur. And during that period, worshipers reflect upon their wrongdoings, which is kind of sad but over the, for over the year, but they, but they seek and offer forgiveness. So they're not, just, they're not just seeking forgiveness from everybody they've wronged. They're actually encouraged to offer forgiveness for those that have wronged them. So that's kind of a cool um, New Year's resolution as well. So there's something in us that, that absolutely loves challenge, and I think that's one of the reasons why for 4,000 plus years, we have been doing New Year's re resolutions. Um, 
challenge makes sporting events popular as long as your team is somewhat decent. Sorry. Um, for the Broncos. <laughs> I'm going to go see them after this, and I'm a little scared about what they're going to do to the Raiders, or what the Raiders are going to do to them, I guess. Um, but this, this concept of challenge is fascinating. Um, you know, there's, there's something about it. It's, it's deep inside us. For centuries, obviously, people have been challenging themselves onto something greater. Um, but the interesting thing about challenge, and I think this is important to note, is challenge is fickle, Right? Um, it's, it's not, uh, it's, if you challenge yourself too much, you lose hope, right? Uh, if you challenge yourself too little, or if you're challenged too little, you get bored and you quit. Um, so an interesting challenge, uh, I don't know, maybe you've seen documentaries or, or read about the tallest place on the planet, and that's Mount Everest, um, elevation 2929. And I'm a bit of an outdoorsman, so I'm always fascinated about mountain climbers, what they will do to go to extremes. Um, you know, the, uh, in, in 1885, this is the story about Mount Everest, maybe you've heard this, uh, uh, Clinton Thomas Dent, Mr. Dent, president of the Alpine Club, wrote a book. It's called Above the Snow Line, okay? And he stated in 18, uh, 1885 that it was impossible to climb Mount Everest. It was too tall of a mountain. 29,029 feet, apparently, in his mind, was too much um, to, be, to be climbed. So when he wrote that, that was like an instant challenge <laughs> to people all around the world. It's, it, it became the beast to be tamed, right? So this is crazy. As of 2016, over 300 people have attempted to climb Mount Everest and never come back. So it's claimed over 300 people's lives that, pe- that we know of. In, in 2016, George uh, Malroy and Andrew Irvine in 1924, so Clinton or Dent wrote the book in 1885. In 1924, they, people think they were the first to summit the top of Mount Everest, um, but no one really knows because they never made it back. So they think that was the first adventurers to actually get to the top, but they died in theory on the way down. So in 1953, okay, so the challenge was issued in 1885. In 1953, Edmund Hillary and Tzing Norway were the first officially to ascend Mount Everest. Um, the question still remains, though, why? What is at the core of, of why people would do something like that? In the grand, grand scheme of things, it's not like you get a bunch of money. It's not like you get a bunch of anything other than the satisfaction being satisfied of the challenge that you've issued yourself. Um, So so New Year's traditions, Mount Everest, challenges deep within us. Um, And and like I said earlier, challenge is fickle, and we're going to talk a little bit about that um, today. There's this term that I'm going to use a lot uh, this morning. It's called differentiation. And if you're an educator, you probably know about this term. Maybe maybe you've heard of it anyway. Um, but it's this concept that um, y- you have to be challenged at a certain amount, right? So, so in education, you take like a, a children's classroom, for example. A lot of educators talk about this. And basically, the concept is if the students, the students have to be challenged as a group, okay, we know that, but they also have to be challenged individually. And the, and the interesting thing is, is if they're challenged too much, if the teacher goes too fast for any one individual student, the, the student will give up and they'll fail. If the teacher, however, goes too slow, the student, ironically, will get bored and then subsequently give up and fail. So so differentiation is a very important concept in education, and I think it's an important concept in challenge. 
Challenge is key to our lives. Just about everything we accomplish in our life is based on challenge. And we see this in God's word. We see God's desire to challenge us. And if we pay attention, we can see that he gives us the perfect amount of differentiation to challenge us perfectly. He started challenging us back early in Genesis, and he hasn't stopped. And in a way, his story, he's been telling this story of his, and it's the story about his mission, his challenge. People call it Missio Dei, or the mission of God. And as it turns out, God is a great differentiator. He knows, ex- he knows each one of us, and he knows exactly how much challenge we need in our lives. The only only question is, is will we pay attention to that challenge? He doesn't go too fast for us, and he doesn't go too slow. Although I can tell you, in my life, it feels like sometimes he goes way too fast, and sometimes he's slow as molasses, but I have to trust that he's doing it the right amount. One of my favorite aspects of God's mission, or the mission of God, Missio Dei, is his invitation. And this is something we're going to talk a lot about today. His invitation to join him in this mission. It's, he's beckoning us, join me in my mission. And, and that's, that's one of the coolest parts of God's mission. As we look, if we look closely, we can see God working his mission out in just about every aspect of life. We have to look closely sometimes, but it's there. Um, one of my favorite stories in the scripture is about the mission of God, um, and we're going to look at it today, and, and maybe you've heard this, um, maybe you've heard it a lot, maybe you haven't heard it at all. It's, it's in the Gospel of John, chapter 4, and it's the woman at the well, okay? Now, if you're like me, I've read the woman at the well, the story, hundreds of times, and so if you're like that, I just bear with me. Hopefully, we'll be able to pull a couple things new out of it for you. Uh, maybe you've never heard the story, and this is going to be new for you, and that's going to be exciting too. So um, a little bit of background on the... Uh, on the story that we need to kind of, before we jump into the text. At this point in John's gospel, Jesus has been living out this mission that we're calling Missio Dei. He's been living it out physically in the Middle East, okay? Most scholars think he was born between 6 and 4 BC, based on a lot of writings that happened uh, around Herod the Great and his activities. So Jesus, we think Jesus was born right about in that section. Um, But speaking of Jesus being born, I'd just like to take a minute. If you're like me, the birth of Christ... Um, and the celebration of Christmas is awe-inspiring. It's emotionally inspiring, it's, it's theologically inspiring, and it's mentally inspiring. But um, I find that if, if I'm not careful, that awe fades pretty quickly. I took down our Christmas lights off the, the front of the house. I didn't have too many. I, was, I didn't have a lot of them. But I took them down, my feeble little lights. You should see my neighbors. They're like, you know, lights everywhere. I took down my lights, and I just kind of felt my heart a little bit go, eh. Hey, Christmas is over, you know? And, and, and that's too bad because the, the reality is, is Christ came. He was born 2,000 years ago, and he walked among us, Emmanuel, God with us. This really happened. And no matter what happened in 2016 and no matter what's going to happen in 2017, we need to remember Emmanuel. We need to, we need to not let the awe of Christmas fade as we, pass, uh, as we leave the holiday season. So back to our story. Uh, Jesus was born, he's grown up, and at this point he's been carrying out his earthly ministry 
uh, in the Middle East. He's been doing the mission of God. And earlier in this passage, uh, Jesus and his disciples have been traveling throughout the Judean countryside, um, and they've gotten in some unwanted attention from the Pharisees. Um, there's an issue about baptism, and the, and the Pharisees were concerned about why Jesus and his disciples are baptizing. And we see Jesus do this in his ministry several times, where he, when he gets too much attention, he kind of bails on the area, and he goes to a different area until everybody calms down. And so this is one of those times. And so Jesus and the disciples are kind of in the southern area near Jerusalem in the Judean countryside, and they go due north, okay, straight into the heart of Samaria, and, and they stop at a town called Sychar, um, and that's where our story is going to take place, and, and it's where Jesus meets the woman at the well. Um, now, some basic things about what we need to know about the Samaritans versus the Jews, maybe you know this, maybe you don't, but they weren't exactly on good terms with one another, okay? And the reason that they really despised one another is the Jews kind of saw themselves as the purists, okay? They had been removed from, from the, the promised land, Israel, and, and they had been planted somewhere else. And when they had come back, they had, they had their religion intact, and they saw themselves as purists. And the Samaritans... Um, were kind of what was left in the area. And the king of Assyria, and you can read about it in 2 Kings 24, he, he influenced them pretty heavily on their religious practices and on the, and intermarrying other groups. And so they, from the Jews' perspective, the Samaritans were kind of the watered-down version. Um, and, and they weren't super happy about that. So the Samaritans, and we're going to find out, they have a little bit of Jewish tradition in their background, but they also have some other stuff that kind of um, makes them wonder. Um, bottom line, Samaritans and Jews did not get along. Jews saw the Samaritans as half-breeds or sellouts. And so there's this really nasty animosity between the two. Um, so we're going uh, to jump in here. John 4, 7 through 26. Um, <clears throat> I'm going to bounce around between 7 and 42 in the passage. Um, so you can follow along with me if you want to turn there. Uh, but to set it up quickly, uh, I, I don't have time to actually read every verse, but I'm going to set it up for you. Um, Early in the passage, we pick up this awkward conversation between Jesus and this woman who has come from the town of Sychar out to the well of Jacob to draw her water. Now, ironically, she's coming out at noon, um, and usually you draw water early in the morning before the sun hits, so it's a little bit um, not, not as much work. Well, she's out there in the hottest point of the day, which tells you she's got some background stuff we're going to talk about. Um, in verse 9, Jesus just come out and asks her, she's coming up to him, and she, he says, hey, can I have a drink of water? Uh, and she reacts the way you would expect a Samaritan woman to act when a Jewish rabbi directly addresses her with no one around. She's kind of shocked, like, wait, why are you talking to me? I'm a Samaritan, and also I'm a woman. Why are you, why are you doing this? Those are social norms that Jesus is kind of breaking right there. But Jesus responds, and, and this is what I love about this story and what I love about Jesus. He's got a plan, and he's, got a, he, he, he's on a mission, right? He's on God's mission, and he's not messing around with what he wants for this woman. And he responds straight out of the gate um, that if he knew, if the woman knew who Jesus was, she would actually be asking him for eternal life or living water. And the woman doesn't get it. She, she kind of not sure, you know, this strange stranger, it's hot, it's this, you know, Jacob's well, and all of a sudden you're, you're wanting to talk to me about eternal life, um, not, not going there. Well, Jesus, for the first time in our story, uses differentiation, okay? She struggles with going from the literal to the spiritual, um, 
But Jesus uses differentiation to challenge her. And, and he goes at her pace. He's challenging her just enough. He's not going too fast for her, for her to bail and leave, but he's also not going too slow for her to get bored, right? <laughs> it's important that we know, and, and maybe, you, maybe this is the first time you've ever heard this, or maybe you've heard this uh, every day of your life, but it's important to know Jesus wants us to know and feel his love. And we see Jesus loving this woman before she even responds to him. In fact, at this point, she's kind of responded to him negatively, but he's going at her pace, and that signals or signifies his passion and love for her individually. That's important. In verse, um, in verse uh, 13, oh, skip the slide, sorry, there we go. Verse 13, since she's struggling a little bit with what he's saying, Jesus tells her plainly, but he uses a metaphor. He tells her that he can essentially turn her, not only can he give her water that will make her never thirst, but he can turn her into a spring of water that wells up to eternal life. And, and this is, he, Jesus has taken big steps here. She must be, this is a custom thing for her, but she, they're going pretty fast. They're going down this path pretty fast. It's a big jump. Jesus says um, in verse 13 and 14, everyone who drinks this water, the well water, will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks the water I give them will never thirst. Indeed, the water I give them will become in them a spring of water welling up to eternal life. Now, if we look closely, Jesus is doing two things here. And the first thing is obvious. I've read this story a lot, and I've seen it every time. First, Jesus is saying, I can save you. He hasn't come out and said it yet plainly, but he will in a minute. I'm the Messiah, Jesus is saying. I'm the Christ, and I can save you. If you ask me, I can save you. That's the first thing he's doing. The second thing he's doing, which is even um, harder to see, and, I, and I've read this so many times, but up until now, I haven't seen it. The second thing he's saying is, um, not only do I want to save you, and I will save you, but I want, but, but I'm going to give you, I'm going I'm to create a spring of water inside of you. And this concept is fascinating. He, he's saying, I will save you, and I'm going to also use you on my mission. She's not even saved yet. She doesn't even know he's the Messiah yet. And he's already saying to her, I can give you water that will make you never thirst. And by the way, I'm going to create a spring inside of you. And that spring is going to be used to help save others. Wow. That's fascinating. If water is what is needed, then a spring of water is something that generates the water. In one statement, Jesus is saying, not only can I save you, but I want you. Join in. I want you on my mission. Every time I read that, I, I did it in the first service, I get goosebumps thinking about that. Before she even commits to him, before she even says, okay, you're the Messiah, I trust you, he's already saying, I want you. I want you on my mission. I want you to help me. Will you join me? The woman doesn't get it. Um, she doesn't fully understand, um, so there's more differentiation. Jesus is going at her pace. And she goes a step further, he goes a step further to tell her that he's the Messiah. Um, and he does this in a strange way. So in verse 16 through 24, they have this bizarre conversation about worship and how to worship Yahweh. Um, he shows her that he knows a lot more about her than she thinks he does. She, he says, you know what, why don't you go back home, get your husband and come back and we'll talk about this. And she says, well, I don't have a husband and he says, that's actually true. You don't have a husband. In fact, you've had seven husbands. And the one you're with now, 
isn't, isn't your husband. And that, that freaks her out, right? I mean, if you're having this random conversation about spiritual water, physical water with some stranger you've never met, and then all of a sudden he starts telling you all about all the embarrassing aspects of your past, you're probably not going to go, wow, let, let's, let's talk about that. She bails on that topic. She jumps into worship, and, and she kind of says, whoa, um, I, I can see you're a prophet, so um, you know, talk to me about worship. Are we, are we supposed to worship um, the Messiah here, or are we supposed to worship in Jerusalem, because Jews think we should worship in Jerusalem only? Um, and the interesting thing is when, G, when she decides to talk about worship, she makes a comment about the Messiah, and she says, you know what? When the Messiah gets here, because we know the Messiah is coming, when he gets here, he's going to tell us all this stuff, and I know that I can trust him. The interesting thing is when she says that, she's actually referencing Deuteronomy 18. So here's that part of the Samaritan background where they know a little bit. They know a little bit about the Jewish tradition. They know a little bit about Yahweh. It's intermixed with other religions. But she's referencing this verse. The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among you, from your fellow Israelites. You must listen to him. So she's saying, I know, I know Deuteronomy says that when the Messiah gets here, we're going to trust him. So we'll just do that. The woman understands that she doesn't really understand everything, but she knows the Messiah is coming. So, so she has this kernel of truth in her understanding. And I think it's important at this point um, that, we, that we recognize something that Jesus doesn't do. He doesn't belittle her, which would be very common in the Jewish tradition at this point for a Samaritan to say something about Jewish tradition a good, upstanding Jew would put them in their place, and they would tell them, you got it all wrong here. Don't, don't you reference Deuteronomy 18 to me. Let me tell you how it is. Jesus doesn't do that. He uses differentiation, and he uses what she knows of the Messiah. And he does something bizarre here, even, even for Jesus. Jesus, in verse 26, then Jesus declared, I, the one speaking to you, I am he. He plainly states, I am he. She says, but when the Messiah, and Jesus responds with, I am he. It's, it's pretty rare. Jesus almost, uh, he does this several times in his ministry, but more commonly, he actually says, shh, don't, don't, don't tell people yet that I'm the Messiah. He tells his disciples that several times in, in, throughout all the Gospels. And he tells people that he heals when they say, oh, you're the Messiah. He goes, yes, but, but keep that to yourself. It's not my time yet. But with this woman in the middle of nowhere, Middle, middle of the nowhere town, Sikar, he says to her plainly, I am he. He meets her where she is using a metaphor to help her get from desert, well, water, heat of the day, to eternal life. And then when she brings up the Messiah, he plainly states, I'm the guy you're looking for. That's me. Can you imagine the awkward silence at that moment in the story. Jesus is having this bizarre conversation with her. She's worried about social norms. He shows her that he knows way more about her than she thinks he knows. And, and then she says something about the Messiah, and he says, yeah, yeah, that's me. I'm the Messiah. The one that, you know, the, the prophets prophesied about so many hundreds and thousands of years before us. She has to be thinking, wait, what? This guy in this place? You're the Messiah? She doesn't say anything, but I can imagine her jaw just dropping, like, whoa, really? John is crafty here in the way he writes his story. This is, is the crux of the story. This is one of the most important points of our story. 
And what does he do? He changes the subject. He leaves us hanging just for a minute. He leaves us hanging because, according to John, the disciples interrupt that conversation right then. So can you imagine the woman said, yeah, when the Messiah gets here, we're going we're gonna to know more, or we're going to trust him. And he, Jesus says, yeah, yeah, that's me. I'm the Messiah. In walking the 12 disciples, the, the woman's going, wait, what? And the disciples are going, what? And <laughs> the disciples interrupt and, and are confused. They go all the way back to the beginning of the story, and they're like, why are you talking to a Samaritan woman, man? What are you doing? Like, that's super inappropriate. They, they, don't, they don't come out and say that because that's not disciple style, according to the Gospels. They just wonder amongst themselves what's going on. Uh, there's a lot of wondering. Verses 28 and 29, um, this is my favorite part of the story. John um, not only left us hanging for a minute there, but, but he doesn't even address what had to have happened right there in that moment with the woman. What happened in her heart? Based on what she does next, this is the moment she is saved. This is the moment of her salvation. This is when her thirst, according to his metaphor, is quenched. He doesn't even bring it up. The text says, the next thing the text says is, verse 28, then leaving her jar, the woman went back into the town and said to the people, come see a man who told me everything I ever did, even the awkward stuff, could this be the Messiah? Boom, just like that. He doesn't even address it. The woman goes from being a despicable outcast that probably wasn't even welcome with the other women to draw water at, at the early morning sunrise. She had to come out at noon to draw her water because she was so despicable. People obviously did not welcome her very much. So she's a despicable outcast. And she goes instantly to becoming a very successful evangelist. In fact, arguably more successful at this point than the disciples were. Her apparent, or, or maybe not so apparent, thirst has been quenched instantly. And, and the next part is amazing. Immediately, the water starts flowing out of her. It just comes out of her. She doesn't, even, she, doesn't, she doesn't go to seminary, okay? She doesn't spend a few years understanding what salvation really means. She doesn't learn the difference between eschatology and ecclesiology. She doesn't have a sin doctrine, right? She hasn't memorized John 3.16, although it hasn't been written yet. But anyway, she hasn't even been baptized. Jesus didn't even baptize her. She joins the mission immediately, just like that. It's like she knows instinctively what's next. She joins the mission immediately, so much so that she forgets about her watering jar because the text says she leaves her jar there, and these jars, they were huge, they were heavy, empty they were heavy, let alone filled with water. And, and she may have left the jar because she forgot it because she's so excited, maybe, or she might have gone, you know, I'm a thinker, and I don't want to carry this thing two more times, and I know I'm going to go get people and bring them back out here. I'm going to leave it here. I'll be right back. That's what I think. I think she was a little bit more intelligent than what most give her credit for. Um, so there you have it. She goes from her thirst being quenched to joining the mission instantly. The next section is fascinating. And, and maybe it's fascinating because it impacts me and where I am in my life. While the people the woman spoke to are on their way uh, from the city to meet Jesus coming back to the well... The disciples do the next logical thing, right? They say, hey, you sent us into town. 
<laughs> we, we did what you, we, what you wanted. We got food. Here's the food. You want the food? They give, her the, give, give him the food, but Jesus responds with, I have food that you know nothing about. Like, well, Jesus, you're kind of keeping us on our toes here. What do you mean? The disciples are confused. Um, and I think the disciples kind of get a bad rap at this point. It's like, oh, disciples, why don't you understand what happened? But there's no way they could understand what happened. They didn't hear the conversation with Jesus and the woman. Jesus says, my food is to do the will of him who sent me and to finish his work. So all they know is they left Jesus tired and at the well and hungry, and they come back. Not only does he seem to not want the food that they've worked to get, they went into town to get, they're shocked to find him breaking social norms. What in the world is going on? They're confused. Guess what Jesus does? More differentiation. He goes at their pace, and he helps them. 35 or 38. Jesus says, don't you have a saying? It's still four months until harvest. I tell you, open your eyes and look at the fields. They are ripe for harvest. Even now, the one who reaps draws a wage and, the harvest a, and harvests a crop for eternal life, so that the sower and the reaper may be glad together. Thus the saying, one sows, another reaps, is true. I sent you to reap what you haven't worked for. Others have done the hard work, and you have reaped the benefits of their labor. If I was Peter at this point, I would say, okay, that did not help at all. I don't understand. That's a very confusing statement. But the point Jesus is trying to make is, look, me, or, or God, or both of us, as it turns out, or the woman has done the work, and look at the fields. It's time to reap the harvest. So he wants the disciples to kind of look behind them and see the people coming from the town. Look at the harvest, he's saying. He wants them to understand that, that when he is hungry, he joins God on his mission and does the work of the mission and then he is satisfied. My food is to do the will of him who sent me and to finish his work. Now, at this point, we have a woman who's, who was thirsty, and now she's not thirsty, right? We have Jesus who was hungry, and, and now he isn't because he's done the will of the Father, we also have disciples who are trying to understand what in the world is happening and, and how doing the will of the Father satisfies Jesus' hunger. Okay, so three groups there. And ironically, the woman and Jesus are the least confused. The disciples who should know are, are the most confused. We see a transition from being thirsty to being hungry to being satisfied. So the question is, how are we satisfied? And the answer is, the mission of God. That's how we are satisfied. The way in the story to not be hungry is to be on mission and to do the will of the Father. So the partnership between thirsty and hungry is really interesting. The thirsty need water, and the hungry, in order to satisfy their hunger, need to give water to the thirsty. And there's a term for this. There's a term for it. I love it. There's a term for everything. It's called a symbiotic relationship. Maybe you've heard the term. And maybe you've heard this term, photosynthesis. You, maybe you're a lot smarter than me and you know more about this process, so I apologize. I'll give you guys the skinny version of, of what photosynthesis is, okay? So photosynthesis is the process a plant uses to break down carbon dioxide and water using sunlight, okay? The process produces glucose for the plant, which the plant uses for energy. Pretty simple, supposedly. The byproduct of this photosynthesis 
you probably guessed it. So the waste the plant kicks out when it does this is oxygen, okay? Oxygen is the very thing, I hope you know this, that we need every minute of every day. It's what we breathe, right? And here's the kicker. When we breathe in oxygen, we exhale carbon dioxide. So for a plant to be satisfied, it needs us. And for us to be satisfied, we need the plant, right? So according to John 4, the hungry are to give water to the thirsty, and by doing so, their hunger is satisfied. Do the work of the Father and have your hunger satisfied. Drink the eternal life, Jesus Christ, and your thirst will cease. The thirsty need the hungry to have their thirst quenched, and the hungry need to give water to the thirsty to have their hunger satisfied. Fascinating. Maybe, maybe you recognize this guy. He's done a little bit of work in the New Testament. This is Paul. Now, the interesting thing about the timeline, when you think about when the Gospel of John was written and when Paul was written, or when Ephesians, Paul was written, when Paul wrote Ephesians, um, there is as much as a 30-year gap. Paul wrote Ephesians as much as 30 years before the Gospel of John, even though when we read it in our New Testament now, it's much, much later in the text. Okay, so the Gospel of John was written between 90 and 110 A.D., okay, but Ephesians was written between 80 and 90 A.D. So listen to the words. I'm going to read to you uh, out of Ephesians a passage. I want you to listen to the words and play the story of the woman at the well in your head, okay? Here we go. For it is by grace you have been saved through faith. This is not for yourselves. It is the gift of God. Not by works, so that no man can boast. That's the water. For we are God's handiwork, created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which, this is fascinating, which God prepared in advance for us to do. So in this passage, we can see the redemptive mission at work in both the non-believer and the believer. And, and this is important. Make no mistake. You cannot earn your new identity, okay? That's clear in Ephesians 2, 8, and 9. You can't even earn the right to keep your identity, there, your new identity. There is nothing about your new identity that you deserve, okay? That's grace. That is a, that is a free gift and we thank Jesus for giving it to us freely, okay? But, but in 10 is fascinating piece because once you have your new identity, there's work to do. You have a job to do. When you do the work, um, uh, your new found hunger, your thirst was quenched and now you're hungry, and when you do the work that God has already laid out for you in advance, your hunger becomes satisfied, Okay? The first section of the story is reflected in Paul's words in 8 and 9, 2, 8 and 9, and the second part of the Gospel of John, the story in John, is reflected in Ephesians 2, 10. Now, I want to talk about the mission for just a minute, um, because I think, um, if you're like me, the mission is really intimidating to me, okay? Um, I hear preachers and theologians talk um, about really complicated theological stuff. It seems really overwhelming. Um, they all seem so confident about what they're saying, and, and I'm, I'm really not that confident um, about all this stuff. It, it can seem overwhelming. The mission can seem intimidating. We often think that the mission of God is about us making something happen, right? 
And I've heard preachers even use guilt and fear to try to motivate people to do something. You've got to go do it. You've got to make sure it gets done. And if you don't, you're either proving you're not saved or you're proving maybe God shouldn't have saved you. That guilt is there, and it's just, it's, it, it's pretty damaging. However, if we look at Ephesians 2.10, we see that God has prepared good works for us to do in advance, okay? Now, remember that differentiation term we talked about and, and how carefully Jesus used differentiation, the way he worked with both the woman and the disciples through their parts of the mission? You can bet that whatever God has set up for you to do, it's not... it's it's going to be something you can accomplish. And it'll be the perfect amount of challenge, okay? It won't be too hard. Trust me, it won't be too hard. But maybe even more importantly, it won't be too easy. It's not overwhelming, and it's not so easy that we get bored with it. These things are custom-built for you and I. And we can trust God. We can, we, can, we can take encouragement from that. So that means the only thing left to do is to join in, is to join in on God's mission. Now, I don't know where you are individually on your journey. I don't know what 2016 was like for you, and I, and I don't know what 2017 will be like for you. Um, and, and maybe you are thirsty. Maybe you're the one in this story that's thirsty. And if that's, if that's the case for you, come, drink of the water that gives eternal life. Come and be satisfied. His name is Jesus. He's the Messiah, the Savior of the world. He came. He was born. He lived out his ministry. He died on the cross for you, and he rose again and beat death. Trust him for the first time and it'll quench your thirst. Maybe you're like me, and I, many years ago, drank that water, and my thirst has been quenched. Maybe you're like me. But if that's you, if you're like me, the question is, is what's next? So I invite you to do the work of the Father. The things that God has set up for you to do in advance. You don't have to make these things happen. Just ask God, what's next? That's all we do. God, what's next? What's the next thing that you set up for me to do? Give water to the thirsty. And either way, either way, join in on God's mission in this new year. Okay, let's pray. Jesus, It is so amazing to see how you saved this woman, gave her a mission, and she took off. (laughs) Thank you for giving us this picture of what you're like and, 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 and what your mission is like. Lord, thank you for inviting us and wanting us on this amazing mission, Missio Dei. Thank you for your love for us that you had even before we drank this water. Thank you for the love that you have for us right now, your patience and your, and your willingness to walk with us at our own pace, not too fast and not too slow. You care for us even in the way that we understand you. Thank you for that.
Lord, you, you are it. You are the cure. God, I ask that um, wherever we are, everyone sitting in this room, that you would speak to us, that you would give us that next step on our mission, or maybe that you would just invite us to come and drink the water. Lord Jesus, we love you. We love you because you first loved us. Thank you for who you are. And in your name, amen.